Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. Uh, good to see you. We are in a series in Proverbs, if you're a guest with us, it's called Feast or Famine. It comes out of chapter 9 which sort of sums up the first section of the book. And it describes this choice we have before us. You can come to this sort of uh, elaborate uh, meal provided by wisdom and and, and have a feast, or you can uh, choose the opposite, foolishness, and eat at that table that you end up uh, leaving unsatisfied. And the way we have defined wisdom in Proverbs is uh, being able to manage with reality in a wise capacity. You've got to be able to see reality for what it is, treat it for what it is. And the only way to do that is to know the God over reality. If you're going to be competent to deal with reality, you're going to have to know the God of all reality. Otherwise, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, you, you can get all the knowledge you want, but uh, there are twists and there are gaps without God. And so you got to know him. And so we have been looking at different topics in the book of Proverbs, and today uh, we're dealing with uh, Proverbs and the subject of money. Uh, you can't really go through Proverbs and this one not jump out at you. And one of the things about Proverbs that you will value, you'll appreciate, is it's got a really balanced view of money. It doesn't de- de- uh, denigrate the wealthy. It points out the dangers, as we'll see. Um, but this is one of those areas, to be truthful, and I'm telling you, by the time we're done, you, you will feel it because it was, it, I could... It was devastating to me uh, how out of touch with reality we can be when it comes to money. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to just allow yourself to put away any preconceived notions of a preacher talking about money and, and see, if, see how well you're dealing with reality. Now, the highest value given to to the money manager in Proverbs is the generous person. It's the highest value. That means it's impossible to be wise with your money if you're not generous. But generosity requires other money practices. And so by the time you're done, you'll be able to assess yourself really well. So the question becomes, what kind of person is generous? That's what Proverbs is answering. What kind of person is? And by the way, um, you ought to be asking yourself, do I want to be generous? Do I even want to be? I'll bet you know someone who's generous, and you can't help but just value it. Like I know this church is filled with some generous people. I know them. And they've been in my life, and they've been in my life for years, and they have taught me how to be generous. Uh, And it's incredible. They're incredible people. And so um, you start with the question, do I even want to be 
and you just go from there. Now, Proverbs will elevate and show you different practices about money. Like, there's at least three before, you, before generosity can even happen. One of them is um, hard work. Proverbs will tell you the wise person earns his money honestly. He's not a cheater. He's not a deceiver. He doesn't deceive people to get money. His business is not under the... He doesn't mess around. The second thing that they will, he will tell you about money uh, is you need to save some. You can't spend it all. All right, and he uses, uses over and over again the ant to convict us about saving for the future. And then the third thing is just overall money management as it relates to debt and as it relates to a budget and different things like that. You can find that in Proverbs 27, by the way, if you're looking for that one. But all three of them are there. And here's the thing about those three things. You can assess yourself on those right now before we even go any further. And here's what I'll tell you about those three things, the hard work, the saving, and the money management, okay? It's really hard to be generous, even if you want to be, if you're not doing those three things. It's really hard to be, okay? But I will tell you that a lot of people are doing those three things, and they're still not generous. So you've got to ask, well, what is generosity then, and what kind of a person is generous. Well, if it's the highest value, we ought to look at the text on a couple of things. I'm going to read three texts to you real fast. I want to sort of get them out there and let them sort of form the foundation of what we say today. And here's what it says. The wage of the righteous leads to life and the gain of the wicked to sin. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. So let's look at these three texts. Let them form the foundation of what we say today. First, let's look at uh, the distinguishing quality in all three of those texts is the word righteous or righteousness. All right? So here's essentially what you're going to see in that quality. Often when we are distinguishing in Proverbs between the wise and the fool, they will be called the difference between the righteous and the wicked. So that there's this sort of moral overtone attached to wisdom. It's more than morality, but wisdom is more than morality, but it certainly includes morality. Um, So, the thing about the righteous is when they get income... They think of others first, not themselves. Now, listen to what Bruce Walkey, commentator, trying to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked in this context. Here's what he says. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. That's how you distinguish them. The wicked, however, are willing, or, uh, are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. I mean, that's just the general posture between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are not going to do anything. They're not going to want to gain anything if it hurts you. The wicked, on the other hand, you don't matter. As long as they get what they need, they're not concerned about you. That's the difference between them. So then he goes on to say that 
And he quotes Job 29, 14, I put on righteousness as my clothing. And this is what he's showing you, that the righteous person has a kind of pattern of life. They're not just specific acts. It's not just how do you handle money. You're the kind of person that when you get money, you think a certain way. All right, so he goes on to say, what's at stake is personhood, not just performance. Disposition, not just deeds. Character behind and beyond the conduct. So that's the righteous person. He just has the kind of character that when he receives income, now notice what it says here, the wage of the righteous leads to life. In other words, when the righteous get their income, it leads to life. It leads to generosity. They can't help it. It's their first response. That's how the righteous person thinks. How do I bless somebody else? It leads to life giving. It's a wage. And even though it's a wage, because some of us think, well, I earned it. That's exactly how the righteous do. They, they know they earned it, but even though they've earned it, they don't think all of it is theirs. When they think of their income, they never look at it as it's all theirs. Some of it has to go out, and it leads to life. It, 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 leads, it creates life. The more, the more wealth they attain, the more life they create. That's how the righteous thinks. The opposite is the gain of the wicked. See, they don't even see theirs as wage. They see it as gain, everything they can get. And it leads not to life, but you'd think the opposite would be death, but it says sin. Everything opposed to God. They just don't have God's values. That's all he's saying. They don't think of their money and then what God wants done with it. That's the principle there. And it's powerful. Uh, then 11.4 is a very simple verse. The riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So the way they think about their money is doing righteous things with it because they know there's going to come a day, a day of wrath, a day of reckoning, a day of accountability, and, they're gonna, and they know that how much they have is not what wins the day on the last day. They know that what they have done with it will be what matters the most at the end. So they have this perspective. The righteous have this ability to think about eternity when they think about their money. They just have that ability. And then finally, the desire of the sluggard, this is very, very incredible. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. We know the labor, the sluggard, he just doesn't want to work. So all day long, all he can do is crave. He craves. You got the desire of the sluggard, and then all day long he craves and craves. Stop there. So the sluggard, he's not even working. He hasn't earned any money, but all he does is crave. And the idea in the, in the text is literally he lusts for himself. He's the only person he thinks about. His cravings are so high and so heavy that he can only think about himself. This is what contrasts with the righteous. Because you would think that when you go, well, if the sluggard who gets nothing only craves, you would think the contrast would be but that the righteous are always content. But that's not what the contrast is. The righteous are not content just to meet their own needs. They're only content when they give. And it says, don't hold back. In other words, they give, they give without sparing. That's what the word means. That's how the righteous think. The righteous are not like the craving sluggards who only think about themselves. The righteous think about the community first. So it has this sort of direction thing. Which direction is it? When it comes into them, it goes out. Sluggard is just the opposite, or the unrighteous. So the question becomes, how do we become a person like that he's describing here? 
That when money hits us, we think about others first. What does it, what does it mean to become that kind of person who's generous? There's two spiritual practices that the book of Proverbs gives us. There's two. And I will tell you that you're going to have to take a deep breath because they are, they are penetrating. Uh, so let's look at them. First thing, the generous kind of person, this is the first thing about a generous person. He is very aware, very much aware of the power of money and his vulnerability to it. Wow. Hang on there because this is, this, is, this is important. Here's what he says in Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Now, here's the thing right here. This is a, the, sort of the core as it relates to money is uh, only money, only money. Nothing like it is a substitute for God. Nothing in your life that you could possibly want rivals, rivals God like money. Because it seems to be able to offer you every single thing that God can. It seems to offer you everything God can. And so there's very, it's very, very possible that we trust money more than God. And so the character of God, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs it. The righteous, he does not trust his money. That's the other thing about the generous person. He doesn't trust his money ultimately. He only trusts God. In that day, the ancient culture, the city was the safest place you could be. It had high walls. It saved you from animals, saved you from dust storms, weather. It saved you from invaders. It saved you from vigilante justice. You wanted to be in the city. The poorest people were outside the city. They didn't have any protection. They were vulnerable to everything. And so if you could be in one of the high towers, well, then you were safe from a lot of the dangers that were below. And so people would run to the city when they were hurting. Well, that's what he's saying. A rich man, it's very possible that your money functions as that strong city. In other words, the place of your security. And notice what he says. This is very important. A high wall in your imagination. In your imagination, and this is where money plays psychological tricks on us. And I'm going to show you how many tricks it plays on you. It plays lots of tricks on us. Because we have this imagination when it comes to money. I'll bet, and this is really true, I'll bet you think you give more than you do. I'll bet you save. I'll bet you think you save more than you do. I'll bet you think you spend your money better than you do. I'll, it's amazing how warped we are in America. As it, listen, if you live in this country, you are economically, financially warped. I don't care who you are. We are all warped as it relates to money, and I'm going to show you. So in his imagination, so psychological tricks it plays on us. Think about this. So if we, if we trust in God, if we trust in money more than God, then we orient our lives around money. All of our decisions are based on money. There's a lot of spiritual decisions many of us in here could have been making, but because money is it the, is it the issue, there's a lot of things that gets left undone for God. We say, I can't go. We say, I can't give. We say, I can't help. We say, I can't, I can't. Because we have oriented ourselves solely around money. Now, here's what happens. Because money is our God, we need more, always. And so most of us, truth be told, we're mentally worn out 
by our need for more and got to have more and the anxiety that comes with it and the deceit that comes with it and all of the things that come with it. Sometimes we're worn out just from hard work because we just need more because we get on this sort of frantic uh, consumption train where we, we earn more, then we spend it. We earn more and then we spend it. And the more we earn, the more we spend. So we're always strapped. This, this, makes, this makes all the rest of the world laugh at Americans who are always strapped and yet have more than almost every, everyone else in the world. But we're always strapped. We're always broke. And so we constantly say things like, I, I don't have it. I can't afford it. There's no way. I, And I'll tell you where they really laugh at us, because we have the audacity to say things like this. If I had more, I'd give more. Do you think the rest of the world laughs at us at that? Do you know that the poorest people in the world give far more than Americans do? That's a fact. More isn't going to make us generous, and that's really important for you to see, because if you think more money will make you more generous... You have, you've been psychologically tricked by money because it just doesn't work. I'm going to show you how it doesn't work because we operate out of the scarcity. Um, you always think you have less than you do. Uh, so a uh, few years back, I read this study, the most comprehensive study ever on giving. It's called Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. It was, created, it was written by uh, three professors, two from Notre Dame and one from Rice, most comprehensive study I've ever read. You, you wouldn't believe what is in here. They did uh, social surveys, uh, the, looked at government stats, uh, interviewed pastors and church leaders and Christians. It's all about Christian giving, American Christians as givers. And uh, the results are absolutely profound. You won't find them anywhere like you will in here. Seven denominations, thorough investigation, and, uh, and here's, here's what they talk about. So this study, I think the results came out in 2009, but they had been doing the study, I think, at 2000, long before 2006 and then up to then. Uh, so average giving is about 2% of people's income. Uh, 20% of profess- professed Christians give literally zero to anything uh, Americans, Americans who earned less than $10,000, less than $10,000 gave 2.3% of their income. Uh, those who earned 70000 or more gave 1.2%. The findings in the book, ultimately the authors say this, increased financial resources actually appear to decrease financial generosity. They don't make you more generous. You might be able to give more money at one time because you have more, but only because you have more. Uh, And then, of course, the most incredible one is the stats, literally the stats on people gave more in the Great Depression than we do today. They literally didn't have the money. We psychologically think we don't. And they gave more than we did. It's profound. So here's what you learn from it. That's what they say. Wealth doesn't make a person generous. 
And poverty doesn't make a person ungenerous. In other words, I'm here to tell you, you want to be a generous person? It has nothing to do with how much you make. So if you're thinking, well, I'd be more generous if I had more, then you just fell into the first psychological trap. Look at Proverbs 30, because this is the... This is the only prayer in Proverbs, thinking about just taking your finances and, and, and filtering through a spiritual grid. This is the only prayer that happens in Proverbs. And look what he says. Two things I ask of you. Lord, do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and then give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Because I don't want to be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And I don't want to be poor and have to steal and profane your name. The last thing I want to happen in my life is for money to dictate my morality or to to in any way jeopardize my relationship with you. That's what he's saying. i got to be honest with you. When was the last time you prayed for God to not give you anything else? I'll confess something to you. I don't know that I've ever prayed that. So why in the world don't we, wouldn't we pray something like that? Because whoever's praying this knows his vulnerability to money. And you and I run around wanting more and more and more and more all the time, which is the first red flag that says we think we can handle any amount of money. It's... it's And I think one of the ironies of this is keep me from lying and keep me from riches. I think we lie to ourselves about what we can handle. And then he says, uh, I, I jotted down three reasons why we might not pray this prayer. The first one is, I just sort of mentioned it, we don't think we're vulnerable to more. We think we can handle any amount. The second reason I jotted down is uh, we don't think we have too much. We're not at a point where we can pray this prayer yet. Wait until I get the billions, then I can pray that prayer. Sure, I don't need another dollar, right? You got to have billions to say, God, don't give me one more dollar. Because you and I look at billionaires with a, how do out of the corner of our eye, don't we? You dirty dog. You dirty dog. That's how we look at people with a lot of money. We go, what are you worrying about another dollar for? You've got to be a billionaire. This has nothing to do with amount. This is all about this. And you see, the other reason related to that is you and I, we're not even qualified, it seems, in America to know what we need. We can't distinguish between need and want. So how would we even know what poverty is or what riches are? Many of us think we're poor. And so we don't even know what rich and poor is. Or are, whatever whatever you say there, for the English folks who... We don't even know what they are. And I get it. 
And then the third one is, we don't think at all that our spiritual life's in danger. The idea of being full and saying, who is the Lord? Would I ever do that? The truth is, we do it now. We get mad at him if we don't have money, and, we, and when we don't have it, we try to get it so that we don't need him. That is spiritually dangerous. And, and most of us walk around, and the truth be told, we're not even scared. How delusional. We're not scared of another dollar at all. I don't know. That really got me. It's arrogant. It's way over self-confident. My spiritual life is not in jeopardy at all with another dollar. So the first thing that a generous person is, he's well aware of his vulnerability. He prays prayers that are ridiculous sounding to Americans. I would tell you the first thing about a generous person is they know their vulnerability to more, and that was very convicting for me. The second thing is uh, a generous kind of person. Last thing, generous kind of person. Uh, he grasps the giving, sort of sowing, reaping principle and paradox really well, so much so that he arranges his finances to keep giving as, as a priority. And I'll show you how he does this. Um, notice Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters himself will be watered. And so this text is just distinguishing between two kinds of people. This time, not the righteous and the wicked, but he's just calling them what they are. Some people are just very tight-fisted with their money. Some people are very open. In fact, the word for one gives freely is literally the one who scatters. It's almost sort of a recklessness involved, very loose with his money when it comes to generosity. Do you know anybody like that? Loose with their money when it comes to generosity, when it comes to others. That's what he's saying. And the other just withhold. And so here's what the generous person believes to the core of his soul. That in God's economy, the giver isn't the loser. The giver isn't the loser. When he releases some of his money to others, he doesn't feel like a loser. He doesn't feel like he's lost anything. That's the paradox. That's the paradox. Because most of us feel like, oh, it's going to hurt. I feel like I've lost something if I give it. Not the generous person. And here's the thing about the agricultural image, which I think is really important, needs to be said in a context like this. Uh, and that is that the farmer looks at his, uh, the reason it's an agriculture is because you're supposed to, we're supposed to view our money as seed, what you, what you make. It's supposed to be seed, something that you plant, something that you put in the ground, and, and you want to see fruit from it. In other words, when the farmer, farmer puts seed in the ground, he's not trying to get back seed. He wants fruit from the seed. So you're not giving to get the same thing. Most of us think, oh, if I give this money, then God's going to bless me with money. God can bless you in tons of different ways other than just money. And that fruit 
is what the generous person loves. He loves the fruit that comes from giving, even though it's not necessarily money that's coming back to him. Because the farmer doesn't expect seed back, he expects fruit. Now, sometimes God blesses you with more seed to give. He does. But most of the time, it's, just, it's, it's fruit, and you get that in return. It's just how it works. And then finally, so he, because he knows that, he arranges his financial world to base his life on that principle. And that's what this says. Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The first thing you're supposed to do with it when you get it is honor God. That's what you're supposed to do first. That's what a generous person would think about. Honoring God with his income. As you can see, the spiritual grid through which this person works. He's very concerned about his own spiritual life with every dollar that increases to him. He's concerned about his spiritual condition as he receives dollars. And he knows that the only way ultimately to break the spell of money in his life is to be generous. So he does it first. It's the first thing he does. So just ask yourself, is it the first check you write when you get your income? Is it the first thought you have is what needs to go out and what doesn't need to come to me first? Because that's, the word honor just means weighty, heavy. It's the same word that means glory. It's just heavy on you. You don't take it lightly. And what it means when you do it to God, it says, I trust you for what I get and I'm thankful to you for what I get. That's all it is. I trust you for what I get, and I'm thankful for what I get. So that's why I give it first. Now, I know, uh, so I give to him before I give to me. That's, the, that's how a generous person thinks. And if you're in here convicted by that, so be it. Let's be convicted by it. So I'm reading this book, and... Uh, and it talks about, I know most of us love to use the idea that, uh, well, God, doesn't God think about the heart only when it comes to giving? That amount doesn't matter. I'm not talking about amounts here, but here's what I am saying. We have a lot of things in our, you know why God cares about the heart? Because what's in the heart, what? Actually happens. That's why God cares about the heart. So if it doesn't produce itself in action, it isn't in the heart. How many of you have in your heart to diet and exercise? It's in my heart. Listen, it's not saving you on calories and, and heart healthiness. You say, well, in my heart, I'm a very healthy person. Actually, no, just the opposite. Okay, so in other words, if the heart doesn't produce a habit, an action, then it's not in the heart. So you can't use your heart as an excuse. Anyway, here's the other thing. So one of the things that they uh, help us with is the mentality of scarcity that we're always, here's the reason Americans don't give is because they think they're they're just broke all the time. Part of it is poor spending habits and part of it is just the mentality that they just never have enough. The other thing is, uh, and I've talked to Christians over the years on this, and many of you have the heart to give, you just, you forget to. It's not a, it's not a ritual in your life. It's not a ritual in your life. 
And so they write this. There are two distinct ways that human beings can act to accomplish things. One is occasionally and situationally. The other is through structured habit or routine. He he says, consider exercising at the gym. Some people do it when they think of it, when their schedule allows it, and when they feel like it. Others do it regularly, almost without thinking about it, at a predetermined time, whether they feel like it or not. The latter generally end up exercising a lot more than the former. Wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. So, this is what he says. This is true for every area of our life. That is because human actions that are costly or difficult are more consistently accomplished when they are systematically structured into established routines and habits that reduce reliance on memory, thought, and intention. You don't even have to think about it once it becomes a routine. And, and I will tell you that, you know, we're talking about transitioning over to planning center. The offering plate gets passed around here. Do you know that 65% of this church, if you've ever looked in that offering basket and go, these people are not going to make it this month. <laughs> it's because 65% of the people in this church give, auto, you know, schedule giving online. They do it online. And I'll tell you, when that started happening a few years ago, the, the, whole, the, whole, the, the whole economic situation of this church changed because we used to have summers that just would dip. You were gone, giving was gone. Now the summers are not an issue. June, July, and August, the lowest giving months. And ironically, October. I don't know why. And there's no reason for that. Maybe it's Halloween. I don't know. Candy. But June, July, and August, it just would plummet. That doesn't happen anymore because of the schedule to giving. People give it. They don't even, it's just coming out of their account. They don't even know. And because of that consistency, it's changed. We don't have to come back in August and get into September 1 and go, oh, we're panicking, and then have a big push because people do that. Um. So to those of you who do that, very, very grateful. I want to say two things as I wrap this up, okay? And you think about this spiritual grid, about generosity. I want to say something about me personally as it relates to this, um, because I know this topic, I mean, just the fact that I talked about money at all from this platform means some of you won't be back next week. I get it. Uh, It happens, I know. But I haven't talked about it. I really haven't talked about it. I haven't done a series on it since 2009. You think about that. So it's been a while since I've even brought the subject up, and I'm sorry that Proverbs even deals with it, because here we are. Let me just say a couple things about it. Um, If you're really serious about being a generous kind of person, because for many years, I was not. I was not that kind of person or could even become that kind of person. And I wouldn't tell you today I give enough by any stretch of the imagination. I'll tell you what happened to me one day, and I'll challenge you to do this. You, whenever you go in to get your taxes done, have your accountant assess your giving. Hey, do you think I give enough? Because that's what my accountant did. My accountant said, Pete, you're on staff at a church. You don't give anywhere close to what you ought to give. And that's because you're making about three or four other mistakes over here as it relates to managing your money. I was 28 years old, had my first kid. 
and it was time to revamp everything. And then Gail and I got on this trajectory of changing that so that we could give the way we ought to give. But I had to have an accountant tell me you don't give enough. It was embarrassing. I didn't even know what that looked like. She's still my accountant to this day and still assesses my giving annually. That is a little scary. So I just want you to know um, that we started making giving a priority there, and it has stayed. And I will tell you something else. You're going to want to know this. I know you're asking, well, what do you give? How much do you give? When do you, how does that look like? And I know, and everybody worries about the word tithe in church. And I want to just tell you my thoughts about that real quick before you leave. I don't believe the New Testament tells you to tithe. We're not under the law. But what I do believe is that the New Testament challenge you, challenges you beyond the tithe. It challenges you beyond the tithe. It's a harder standard. It's higher. The tithe isn't the thing that you're commanded to do, nor is it the limit for what you should do. God doesn't look at you, oh, you're giving your 10%. I can't ask you for any more. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said anything. Shouldn't have said anything. Oh, no. You can bust through that limit. But if you're using the tithe to keep from giving what you ought to be giving, which the minimal standard in the Old Testament was 10% under the law, and you haven't arranged your finances in such a way to move toward that, That's something to shoot for. Now, I'll tell you the other thing about the tithe. It's not just a good benchmark. It's good practice because it says I'm going to give this amount, I'm going to do it at the beginning of the month, and I'm going to let it go, and then I'm going to let God handle the rest. That's a good practice for a person that wants to try to be a generous person. The second thing I want to say has to do with this church. Uh, this is not just, this, what makes Hillside different than the church that just wants money and gives talks like this because people want to get money? I want to give you a couple of different things. First of all, I want you to know that 22 years in, in the life of this church alone, I'm not after your money. I'm not in charge of money around here. I can't write checks. I don't write checks around here. Checks need two signatures. We've got a treasurer who's a hound dog. We've got an executive pastor who wouldn't let that happen. And I've got elders that account for it every single month. I am just as accountable for dollars as anyone else on this staff. I do not set my own salary, nor would I ever dream of that. Other smart people who care about what you give set salaries in the life of this church. That's what I want you to know. And I'm going to tell you something else that distinguishes us from the church that just wants your money. I'm not promising you anything with your giving. I could stand up here and say, oh, God will bless your life if you give. I don't know what he's going to do to you. <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you this, that I have been given for, there are times when I go, you know, I, you, you go, God, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just blessed me with that. You know, I, I can't believe God, you did that. that's overwhelming. Bring tear to your eyes. 
Then there'll be other times when you're like, oh God, did you forget that I gave anything at all? And so you ask me, what's God going to do for me? If that's your question, you're not a generous person. That's the first thing I want to tell you. And the second thing is, I have no idea what he's going to do for you. And so I would never tell you that. Never. That's the difference. And I just recently, you know, I've always been the check writer. Because it's just the way I've always done my budget, you know, by hand. And I write the check, and I know some of you are like that. It took me the longest time, but this week, this week here, I finally got onto that planning center thing, and even I, even I did it in my office without any help. It was that easy. (laughs) And now I wouldn't ask you to do it. The reason I did that is because we're not going to ask you to do it if I'm not. Not going to do it. So if you're in Fellowship One and you're one of the 65% in this church that gives like that, scheduled giving, it just happens automatically, thank you so much for doing that. You're going to have to cancel the one in your Fellowship One, then go over to Planning Center and reboot it there. Because there's coming a point here at the end of July where Fellowship One won't be active anymore, and whatever you have scheduled won't come out. So I'm just telling you that because that's what we're doing. And I did it even though it broke my heart to stop writing a check. I went ahead and did it too, to join it. So, anyway, you do with that what you will. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we, uh, we take what your spirit is telling us right now. We might have to confess. And we might have to come to some realizations in our heart. But we want to deal wisely with reality. And we want to honor you first and foremost. So forgive us and challenge us today. In Jesus' name.